Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. We've recorded at all kinds of crazy times, like 10 p.m. on a Sunday night yes. or whatever. It's just like whenever our schedule allows, we'll record and then we'll... We, but we try to put it up on a consistent time so people know to look for it on Wednesday. I think your daughter made a special appearance in she one did. episode. Yes. <laughs> she got up from bed when she was supposed to be in bed. <laughs> Some parenting. I have a four-year-old, um, my son's oldest, and then my two-year-old um, daughter, and um, their names are Oliver and Maggie. Other questions from anybody? Does dirty campaigning go away at the local level? I'm no. going to repeat it for the... <laughs> no, it doesn't. But it's not... I, do I think it's different. Yeah. Um, I think it's. it tends to be more issue-focused instead of just like kind of general slander. Because it's still like somebody that other people in your community know or you know when you're running a local campaign. And so you still you try to treat them, you usually try to treat them with respect, but, you know, forcefully disagree with their position on an issue or something like that. But it's not like the presidential and congressional levels at all. I'd and that's there's like billions of dollars spent at that level. The transitory thing is kind of interesting because it happens quite a bit. When you take an endorsement from a person or an organization, there is a, often an attempt if there is a perception that they hold a radical view that you will do the like guilt by association thing. And that's tricky because sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. <laughs> so, but in this case, it wasn't true. I feel like at the local level in a swing district campaign... It's risky. It's extremely risky because it could backfire. And you have, you have a certain amount of money and nobody knows who either person is. And by, by nobody, I mean like usually you're looking at less than 20, less than 10% name recognition, like, who are these people? So they actually end up having to spend quite a bit of their own money saying, hi, I'm Ben Bowman. This is what I do. This is my background. This is what I'm running for. And you don't have as much money, I guess, to do negative campaigning. That's my perception. That's a great question. I think we're trying to make it so that people can listen to, like, there's a lot of these podcasts out there that are like three hours. And I used to listen to those. I don't anymore because I just, I have so much other stuff going on. My goal is for the podcast to be 35 minutes long. Ben's goal is for it to be at least 20 minutes longer than that. So, um, And I'll, what I meant when in my earlier comment was like, once you've talked to 10 different people who have 10 different views on one policy issue and you can understand it from each of their perspectives, that's something most of our colleagues in the political space aren't as skilled at because it takes time. I mean, if you spend 30 minutes... Go find nine people to talk to the urban, about the urban growth boundary with who actually have enough knowledge to have an opinion on it. There's not enough space in the political landscape for that I'd one say. thing i just thought of too is that our podcast is very much how like actual laws get made in oregon because the time that you have in front of a committee on a particular issue is probably like 10 to 20 minutes to explain the issue and then get questions from legislators so like now hopefully they're all going and doing digging and getting information and meeting with these people individually a lot of these groups do have individual meetings with people before the committee but for all of it to be done and people to understand the issue in public view you may have 
at most, you know, a couple committee meetings on a big issue or 10 to 20 minutes on a smaller issue where you say, this is our case. And then maybe you get a couple questions from the legislators and then the other person may come up if there's an opposing viewpoint and present a different case or maybe a third viewpoint from another person if and there's then questions if there's time. And then it's like, okay, and then we're done and we have to move on to the next thing because there's so much law to consider. And, and even then one, you know, a 10% or less of the bills are getting covered. So it's like, I think that even though it doesn't feel like a lot of time, it's actually a lot of time in the public lawmaking process. That's right. That's right. Other questions? Or doomed to bad decisions. No. I don't think that's true. No. The question there's a was whether we're doomed to bad decisions because there's not enough time. There, there's a great book. It's called Democracy, a Case Study. I highly recommend it. And I read it in graduate school as part of a class called Democracy in Crisis. And it was taught by an incredible man named Tom Ehrlich. And Tom said he was moved to create this class because there was this narrative out in the country that we're living through an unprecedented time. It's never been so bad in this country. The politics are divided. It's a very scary time. And this book is a series of case studies, a few dozen case studies, about times when it's been way worse than it is now. We've overcome a lot of really horrific and horrible moments in this country's history. We've been incredibly divided, much more divided than we are now, and that's including post-Civil War that we often forget about, that's not often discussed. So is our democracy perfect? No. But are we, I still feel like the bones are strong, particularly at the state level. Like, I, I still think there's good constructive dialogue in most cases. I do think that there's an intent to, I don't want to say compromise, because that implies, like, to hear each other out, to provide space for people to engage. I have no experience in Congress, so I maybe have less optimism there. But I definitely am not in a pessimistic place about American politics right now. No, I'm not either. I think I told Ben I might say something like this, but, like, if your theory is that it's really bad now and we're in pretty significant decline, I would say, one, that's coming from, you know, arguably some sort of peak where you had... The problem is, is we're kind of... We're going through several versions of a political alignment. And the voters' political alignment has already happened. Now what's happening is the candidates are changing, right? A guy like Mitt Romney used to be a pretty standard Republican candidate, right? Business background, moderate on social excuse, fiscally conservative. Like, a lot of those candidates don't exist anymore. They don't exist because a lot of the socially liberal voters have migrated the Democratic Party. And so most of those candidates exist in the Democratic Party now. So it's weird to see these candidates kind of flush out and get replaced by different kinds of candidates, but it's because of the political realignment that's happening between the two parties. You had an era for a good chunk of the 70s, 80s, and 90s where there was conservative Democrats moderate Democrats, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, moderate Republicans, liberal Republicans. That was in the early part of a realignment, and that took a long time. And so if you thought that that point of lawmaking, which is the peak, which, by the way, I could argue it wasn't, there was a lot of backroom dealing, there was a lot of pork barrel spending and corruption, uh, corruption right? So you could say that that was better, and in some ways it was because maybe government functioned faster, and it's happening a little bit messier now. But you know, also go all the way back and Burr shot Hamilton. So, like, <laughs> that there hasn't been, like, a one-on-one -on -one top two political candidates physically fighting or shooting each other. So you could argue it's still better than that. I also think that in most cases, when someone who is a progressive is asking that question, it's because of Trump and his attempt to challenge the elections. And I don't agree with those, and I think that he's testing bounds that most candidates don't test, but those bounds all held up. The courts threw out most of the cases they didn't think are relevant. The ones that are still in court are going through the, the proper proceedings. 
And for, you know, for the most part, I would say most of those attempts weren't successful, right? And so the bones of the democracy held up when they were challenged. I think the number one thing that continues to protect that is allowing individual states to run their elections. If you had one centralized place where all the elections were run, that's where you worry more about the corruption and the stuff that happens in other countries. So I would encourage you to continue, whatever party you're a part of, continue to support a state running their own elections so that in order to overturn a single election, you would have to overturn multiple states at the same time that are probably politically diverse, right? That gives you the best chance to uphold your democracy. There's always people trying to implode any democracy that exists. The goal was, with our democracy, to distribute the power enough that it wasn't possible to beat it with one person or even one group of people. And so far, I think that's that's working. So we just have to continue to build our systems and build our government in a way that continues to allow that to happen. When too much power becomes centralized in either party, they start to abuse it generally. And so we just don't want to get to that point. So that's why it's important for me as a Republican to be very loyal opposition to Ben's party (laughs) in order to hold him accountable of any corruption that may exist or may exist in the future. And Ben would do, and the Democrats did, my dad tells many, many stories about how the minority was very vocal and used a lot of the tools they had available in the legislature when the Democrats were in the minority because they wanted to make sure that they were holding the Republicans accountable. And then hopefully journalism holds both parties accountable. And so you have all these different weights. So just like you have our system of government with distributed power, you also have distributed political viewpoints, political pressure, and political power. The news and journalism has political power to leverage when they want to use it. And so it's important that journalism exists and be, you know, to the extent it can be generally fair when there are two sides of an issue. So. Thank you. Go ahead. At some point, aren't uh, some political disagreements kind of uh, rooted in metaphysical principles? Hmm. Um, Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? So, like, uh, if there's a disagreement over some hot topic, say related to, like, human sexuality, for instance, uh-huh. people's views on that on either side kind of come down to a certain view of reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, And it seems to me like maybe a lot of other issues kind of fundamentally come down to a a metaphysical disagreement as well. Those are pretty um, risky for people to give up that their side might be. How do you, yeah, I guess, how in a conversation do you stay civil after a certain point with someone who you would really disagree with? That's a great question. uh, Summarize that because for the sound. Some of our disagreements are based on fundamental beliefs and metaphysical beliefs and those seems like they might be very difficult to do the kind of bridge building that the Oregon Bridge does. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can comment on that in general and maybe if you can recall any of your interviews where that kind of stuff came up, how that went. Ben should definitely go first. So uh, it's a great question. I think about this a lot. The first thing I'll say is like I feel very strongly I'm pro-choice. I'm just very strongly pro-choice. Reagan worked for Oregon Right to Life, and I think very believes pro-life. as mm-hmm. strongly as I do on the other side of things. Not just on the podcast, but like together, we don't actually talk about that very much <laughs> because I think we're both like pretty. We're aware of where we stand. I don't have any belief that like Reagan, what he believes is about politics. Like it's literally just what you believe. It's you're a person of faith. Like, I th- and I think you respect like where I'm coming from. 100%. And so like we, I think we could talk about it in a respectful yeah. way. We have in the past, mm-hmm. but we're pretty fixed. We're pretty fixed on that question. What I'll also say is like, so I'm I'm a gay man. I don't know if I could have done this podcast, let's say 15 years ago. 
I wasn't old enough. But like the conventional view of the Republican Party at that point was pretty dehumanizing towards people like me. And it would be very hard to have, a, and especially when I was like, right, these uh, LGBT right issues were actually pretty prominent in the political discourse. Don't ask, don't tell, gay marriage, adoption, all sorts of issues like this. It's a lot more, when those issues are personal to you and they impact like your life, it's a lot harder, I think, to try to do what we do, which is be open-minded, hear different perspectives. And so I think like I'm reflecting on what that means and whether everyone has that ability in today's political discourse. But it's a really good question and worth reflecting on. Reagan, I don't know what you think. That is true. So there's two things. One is that you have to understand and be okay with the fact that we live in a democracy and that the basically the main tenet of it is that the lawmaking bodies make the laws and that the voters, when they have the direct ability to weigh in on a ballot issue, most votes wins. That's just 100%. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with the fact that sometimes there will be policies in your state or other state you do not agree with on core issues to you. And I think it's really hard for me to explain that if somebody doesn't understand that. Mm. So I am totally fine with the fact that there will be laws made that I totally disagree with about like super core beliefs that I have. I'm fine with that. I'm also fine with candidates and friends and people I know like Ben who are going to hold totally opposite viewpoints. Some of them I will understand and I think I generally understand like the pro-choice point of view. I made it I felt like that was important because when you're trying to explain a pro-life point of view, you have to understand the pro-choice point of view to know where someone's coming from, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was totally okay with understanding that person's beliefs it didn't change what i believe because like my beliefs are rooted in like specific experiences that i had and things that i've seen and my belief is as a christian right but i don't live every day in like complete and utter agony because oregon is a generally pro-choice state like i understand that and the political position i take is just one of what is the most popular change that i could make to the law and then i try to do that because i know i wouldn't change the ideas of swing voters overnight. And so I just work for the political change that I think is the most viable and would produce the best result at the period that I'm in. It may never change, and I'm still okay with that too. Like, I'm not going to surrender that principle just because, you know, Oregon is the way that it is. And so I think that, like, a couple of those core things where you can understand the law may never change to what you agree to, whatever your position is, and that there are going to be people that always disagree with you regardless of what the law is and that the most votes wins. It's like if you have those as your founding or understanding the like shared ideals, that works, and people we can all live with that. I think the problem becomes is if – it, you know, if obviously if it turns violent, it's always bad. No violence. We should never use political violence for anything. I say that as somebody who knows that there's political violence that has been done on, on behalf of a supposed pro-life cause, right? I don't claim any of that. Don't want any of that. So no political violence, right? It's got to be done in a democratic way on the rules we all agreed on. Because if we don't have an agreement upon the rules, we don't have anything. Society will descend into chaos, and it won't matter if you're pro-life or pro-choice because we'll just be trying to survive. I think the important <laughs> thing here, though, as I'm reflecting, is... Yeah. I don't know if that answered very well your question, but that's, that's how I think about that's it. That's 5% yeah. of the policy areas that we, as a society, have yep. to figure out. Economic policy, land use policy, housing policy, healthcare policy, education policy. A lot more room for nuance and curiosity and yeah. middle ground and, you know, massaging and all that. Do not know of any land use religions, although I would be interested <laughs> if there was one. <laughs> yeah. But great, really good question. Other questions? Go ahead. Um, with the evolution of, like, how uh, social media, legacy, mm-hmm. and all these different 
um, outlets uh, inform kind of American, the American people of political issues, social issues, issues. Where do you guys generally get your mm. information and news? Mm. And we see kind of the numbers of legacy media fluctuating downwards and social media going upwards. You say delete Twitter. Right? <laughs> yes. And I have a Twitter. Yeah. It's a good question. There's things like that where there's more independent creators now and they're becoming more popular. I mean, even yeah. podcasting is massive right now with Joe Rogan and That's right. all that. So I'm just curious. So the question was where these guys get their information, whether they use social media, or legacy question. media. What's the mix? So for me, so I write, our company puts out a Oregon politics newsletter every Monday. Mm-hmm. And so for that... It's I, called The Liftoff. It's called The Liftoff. I read OPB, The Oregonian, Willamette Week... Pamplin, which is like Portland Tribune, the Oregon Capital Chronicle. I think I'm forgetting a couple, but I have like, this is overkill, but like every Oregon politics news source, I get that. On the national level, not as much as I should. New York Times and The Economist are the two that I read. I will read Twitter for like, the example I will use is like, there are certain, mostly for like people in the political space. So I will follow politicians, like there are people in Oregon politics will tweet press releases mm-hmm. that like never get a write up in any newspaper. So the only way you're going to see them is if you actually read the press release, which you can subscribe to. By the way, it's just hard to do. It's, <laughs> it's hard not, to do. It's, it's not a obvious. bad system. I think you are you're totally correct about the trends, and I think it's it is something alarming. Um, the fact that like there a, a larger percentage of the population is receiving their information from is unvetted uh, appropriate term. Like people who don't have an editorial review process, they don't have an obligation even necessarily to be honest or even to be objective. People who have a specific agenda in mind. Yeah, it's a tough question. What do you think? I have a very different viewpoint on this actually. And I don't know if I flushed all this out with you, Ben, but so we used to live in an era, I think it was, oh gosh, I'm going to get like a lot of these facts wrong. So, but like the vibe is almost correct. So (laughs) I I want points. No, so there, I think I remember, recall reading at one point that Chicago had two papers at one point and the one paper was a clearly liberal paper and one paper was a clearly conservative paper and I don't know I think both of them had editorial review processes and things like that so there was some general like journalism stuff that is good to have we have a lot more of this current like social media stuff I generally think because I'm a Republican who thinks that the news media is you know good portions of it are somewhat biased I don't mind that there's been a kind of breakdown in like the holy grail of these are the only medias that we can listen to like I think it's fine to take in outside input I think you should when you read something that doesn't sound true you should probably look other places to try and verify if it's true I think using just reading multiple sources from multiple different viewpoints and then kind of using them as a check against each other is another way that you can use balances, like checks and balances, to kind of improve what you know and what you believe to be true. Because a lot of times it's like one outlet will report some pieces of this story and another outlet will report some of the same pieces and then other new pieces of information they've gone found. And so even with traditional media, you kind of need to layer them over each other to get all the information anyway. So just do the same thing with multiple outlets. That works on an individual level, but yeah. I think most consumers are choosing conservatives are receiving conservative news, yes. liberals are receiving liberal news, and there's a sort of echo chamber dynamic. I think that, the like, challenge with that, though, is, is like, okay, so I went from watching Fox News every day to reading like Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. Like That didn't change anything. And cable worse. news... 
You think it's, it's you think it's worse? It's for sure. Worse? For sure. Not a lot worse, <laughs> but it's not wor- a lot worse. I think actually this was one of your questions was something about like you know what advice do you have? I think that people should watch less news. I think yeah. TV news in particular is like That's incredibly fine. toxic. Yeah. Like it's not actually helpful. I don't enjoy watching Fox. I don't watch Fox. I don't. I don't find it. I don't find it gives me more information than I would be able to go if I just like. Googled something. My dad watches MSNBC and he's always so angry. <laughs> he's yeah, like always angry when he watches it. I'm like, it's not use, It's not worth your time. I think you should read The Economist. I think you should read Foreign Affairs. I think you should be a global citizen. You should pay attention to what's happening. But if your life is consumed by cable news, that's a dark, dark I place. also think that like it's not – I think the conversations on social media are bad, but it's fine as a distribution method for media. You can follow all the traditional media outlets that you want to consume on Twitter. There's no problem with that. That's how I consume most of my news. Yeah. But I try to get it from like sources where I believe it. But there are some websites out there. A lot of them that I'm exposed to are on the Republican side that I already – like I already have credibility issues with them, and I don't – like a, a lot of the stuff I find is either half true – or is just completely false, and so I just ignore the sources that I don't find to be trustworthy. And then the other thing is just look for, I mean, I have to do this all the time at work, is go look for the actual government documents or the report from the organization instead of reading about it. That's the other thing that drives me crazy, is like there'll be this story about a poll in Oregon, and the (laughs) number one thing I do is email journalists at these things and saying, link to the poll you got so I can read it. Because I don't want to read a write-up of a poll. I just want to read the poll. And if I don't know how to read the poll, I'm going to Google how to read the poll. When I don't know, is what's very funny, I don't think most people think about this. When I'm a political consultant and I don't know how to do something, I Google it. And then I figure <laughs> out and learn how to do it. And I think I think we just need, we'll have to be more proactive is generally the answer. You'll have to be more proactive about verifying the things that you read with things that you trust and I think that's generally always been true, but I think there was kind of a period where we took for granted that there were other people that were going to do that for us, and we just need to get back to doing it ourselves. And we need to teach media literacy. That's a good. I think, I, I think, I think that's we, 100% good. Yeah. And government yeah. literacy, too. Yeah. Governments will attempt to lie to you, too. Did you want to say something? I was a librarian. Yeah. I think we might want to say something on that. I think we are moving that direction. I think people understand, like, I we just... I've had this, just had this conversation on artificial intelligence and how like it's going to be increasingly hard to like it will it is already pretty easy to create a video of Joe Biden saying like I am pro life or whatever or Donald Trump saying like you know like which the AI voice generators are really bad the voice generators the video generators there's also like this is a new th- this is really unethical in my opinion but there's like this emerging campaign strategy of where you create like a a newspaper or news website looking mm. thing and create fake headlines that are like kind of like the mail piece we talked about where they're just like not intellectually honest. So what's interesting is I don't, I think I agree with you, but like, so the Oregon Catalyst website is a specifically touts sure, itself sure. As, uh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. as a blog that comes from a conservative viewpoint. And I think as long as you're just upfront with it, I don't care. But it is weird. Some of these sites are, I don't quite understand. I haven't seen any of them in Oregon, though. So we just have to, I think, like, media literacy, you'd be better at designing that curriculum than me. But I think every consumer of media needs to have a a healthy degree of skepticism about what they're reading. And if something sounds egregious or, like, it's making you feel angry, like, that's my first thing when my dad will ever come to me with something he saw on Facebook. I'm like, I don't know that that's true. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. But, like, let's figure that out before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Who should you think be the one to teach media literacy? Do you think that that should come down to like primary school mm-hmm. level? Should that come from a library? Like, what do you think is the best kind of nonpartisan source for that? Great question. I think, I don't know. 
Ben, um, do you remember, what's the civics? Is the civics requirement just high school in Oregon? I believe so, yeah, because it's a graduation requirement. Yeah. I so, think high school's fine. I think, but I think you got to start earlier. I think it's part of a, uh, it's part of a student's development. It's like, well, part of this is that I'm not going to let my kid have a phone in middle school, but that's just <laughs> no, me. That, I, <laughs> no, I, I think we do need, I actually do think we need to regulate that. Phones and screens in general are yeah. having a <laughs> serious effect on child development that we actually haven't fully grappled with. But I think like when, when we talk about teaching civics, we don't wait till a kid gets to the junior year of high school and say, America is a democracy. And this is a, mm, like yeah, you start yeah. early in a kid's development. So they're exposed to these ideas. You're obviously not teaching, you know, you're not explaining to a first grader what a deep fake is, but <laughs> right, like you're, but you're, you're exposing them to going to go home and tell my son his drawing is a deep fake. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be like, what, dad? You're trying to teach them how to consume information responsibly. So I don't know. I'm going to defer to our librarians and others to help design that intervention. But my gut says that it's something we want to be part of the entire educational experience and probably something we want to encourage parents to talk with their kids about at home, too. Yeah. I mean, I think more at home is good. I think it should start in high school. I don't know. I think part of my problem is I'm thinking about my own kids and raising them. And it's like there's a certain level of when you're a kid, you don't know everything. And so here are the trusted adults in your life. And you should just trust what they say. Getting into (laughs) explaining what in most cases, assuming they're trusted, right? But there is, I think, when you're trying to teach them to, like, discern properly information, you're kind of generally doing that. But, like, doing it with the news literacy, I think, matters a lot less until they're in high school because most of them aren't going to be consuming news content until they're in high school. That's just me. I could be totally wrong about that, but that's just the way I'm thinking about it right now. I mean, you're starting to do reports in middle school where you need sources. Oh, okay. Um, that's I, Yeah, I could see that. So that's true. Yeah, you can't. I the number one thing I was taught, but I don't think that this happened for me until high school. But I was homeschooled, so my education was a little different. When I wrote reports, the number one thing that was drilled into me is Wikipedia is not a source. I had to <laughs> no, go. They did I had to click on the source on Wikipedia and cite that. <laughs> they did that in public school too. <laughs> we have about ten minutes left, so we have time for two or three more questions. Anybody else have a good question right now? You guys have been fantastic, by the way. I've really yeah, enjoyed the conversation. It's been super fun. You guys have good questions. And, and Ron, thanks for what you're doing with the Civility Project. That We need a lot more of it, and you're a leader, and we appreciate it. Thank you. And hopefully when we publish this as an episode of our podcast, you can send it to everyone who wasn't here, and then they'll <laughs> all hear it. There are a few who aren't here, yes. Anybody else have a question? Is anyone here in the Christine Drazen class? Apparently not. No? Okay. Yeah, Christine Drazen is uh, teaching a... Uh, oh, what's the title of the, po- the class? You remember, Aaron? Oregon politics. Oh, it's just the title of Oregon politics. Yes, meets on Thursday nights right over here. Yes. Is there a um, like uh, an amount of incivility that could be like productive in a conversation or in a, a debate or in a political like uh, hmm. legislative? Oh, that's sure. A, that's a good okay, question. So the question is whether incivility is ever productive in a debate. Yeah. Or a conversation. Another great question. I think the answer that's is really for sure. Yeah. Like I think there are certain things or certain values or principles that should be so true and sincere that like, if I was in the minority party in a state where they were trying, first of all, just recognize being in the majority party. (laughs) is awesome. (laughs) It's way better. It's way better. (laughs) But like, I'm thinking there are states across the country where the Republicans are in the majority and they are engaging in policy campaigns that I would say border on violating the human or civil rights of people. I think that's a time for incivility, not for political violence, importantly, and maybe not even in name calling, but like give a fiery speech. Like there are times where I think walking out of the building 
I mean, protest is an appropriate part of the process. I would take exception with how it's played out in Oregon, and that's a separate podcast conversation. But I think it's an important question. It's probably a different answer for every actor in the political space. But I think everybody should believe in something deeply enough that if that principle is violated, that they are willing to like take their protest to the next level. Again, not violence yeah. or even name-calling, but I think like there's degrees here. Super important to de- define in civility when you're talking about yeah, this subject, right. obviously, because different people may think of those things differently. But I agree with your general premise. Like for me, one of the things I do not understand that's happening right now, and I apologize if you disagree about this, I'm not necessarily, you know, saying that your values are wrong or anything like that. But I very strongly and have for a long time been very supportive of Israel. And so a lot of the behavior I see where people are like, and again, this is probably stoked by social media, and there's a very small part of the populations that's doing this, but because it's on social media, it's like in front of people a lot. They're like going and tearing down hostage posters. I don't understand behaviors like that. And so there's, it's interesting because sometimes I think some people who have really strong opinions will do like super incivil things. And the goal is to have like, or like to do something radical and I guess wake people up or something like that. That doesn't work for me. I don't understand like the pulling down of those those posters, right? And that's just like one weird example of something that's going on that I don't understand. But there are many things happening that I don't understand. Can we ask Ron this question? You're head of the civility project. <laughs> so what's your what's your answer? Well, the question comes from partly comes from an understanding of civility that we're in the civility project trying to expand. Hmm. If we think of civility only as personal kindness and politeness, then certainly there are times when that's probably not your yeah. The politeness part. Right. I don't know why kindness would never, why kindness would ever be abandoned, but politeness for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. So what we've, t- and this is on this little back of this little sheet, if you're interested in more about it, I have a summary of some of the ideas that we're working with as, as sort of a three levels of civility. Uh, the personal kindness is one, uh, to love your neighbor. And I guess I'm with Christ and Gandhi on that, so I'll just trump you guys. Uh, <laughs> Strong coalition. Never out, of, never out of fashion, never out of right. The second level of civility is to accept the, the disagreement as a gift and treat it as something you're to be a steward of, to take care of, to mm-hmm. use well. Mm-hmm. And that includes for justice and all the other things that we talk about. And using a gift and ignoring justice would not be civil. So you can't drop the justice part out of it. That's where your response is understandable. We probably debate about what the proper way is to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to stretch the word civility in ways that... And then the third is the one I asked you about earlier. Shouldn't I at some point be willing to sacrifice other things to protect the political culture, to protect our ability to mm-hmm. reason together and make decisions? Mm-hmm. Why I'm pretty proud of the group that was going to withdraw some money if a guy got a little bit out That's of right. line that way. That's right. So the, if we think of it as three levels and that it's all based on the idea that we need to love our neighbor, but that our neighbor's disagreement is there by design, and it's a gift. I really like that. And I think the one, I don't know if this is a caveat or a foundational element, yeah. it's got to be good faith disagreement, right? Like if, if where I'm not sure yes. is if when you're weaponizing power mm-hmm. to hurt people or oppress mm-hmm. people to serve a political objective, which mm-hmm. I don't think is real common, but I think happens, and I think we see it, maybe it just is a, it takes a, a test of self-discipline and that people need to rise to meet that, but my gut reaction to that is like, no, we're not going to dignify that weaponization of power and oppression of people with push back on me if, if you think I'm coming at this no, in the wrong fine. place. No, uh, I, think, I think the way I would answer that, and you're asking a good question. I'm not sure we've got all, the, all, all worked out how to mm-hmm. do that. But even in that case, 
here I'm going to cite some Gandhi. Great. Even in that case, so Gandhi was clear that the British needed to let India be independent, but he wanted it to do it nonviolently because he thought both sides had things to learn. Uh -huh. That the Indians had things to learn from in Britain. Britain had a lot of things to learn from India, particularly that India should be independent. But he didn't want to do it in a way that stopped Britain from participating in the conversation because mm. there were still things that needed to be heard. So it's difficult, and I don't know how to sort it out. I can't tell you how to sort it out. But in the case where somebody knows that maybe they know that the other, you know, they, they want to just exercise their power. They don't right. want to deal with the issue and they want to just suppress it. Even there, Gandhi would say, we can't close it off in a way that prevents us from learning whatever there is of that, that that person has to say. And so in the Quaker sense, the Quakers would say, we want to speak to that of God in every person, that there is that of God in every person. We want to speak to that, but we also want to listen to that of God in every person. Mm -hmm. So the Quakers would send delegates off to, I mean, kind of crazy maybe that during the British conflicts with the Russian, they, they sent delegates to the czar so they could mm -hmm. listen to the czar mm -hmm. and see what the czar had to say that they might learn from. And even though they probably weren't considering the czar as having That's a right. just cause. Well, I think I'm, I'm making an assumption. You're making assumptions about intent, right? Like I might see weaponization of power whereas they might see some righteous cause. I'm looking at Reagan because... That's know. hard. I think for me it goes back to working with what we've got, which is still a pretty partisan environment in the United States and in Oregon. Mm -hmm. In that environment, I think cross-party incivility is super ineffective because we disagree fundamentally about a lot of those things that you'd be uncivil about. And so what's more useful is the two things, the cross-aisle relationship building, which helps us to kind of bridge that gap. And it isn't because we live in a majority system, it isn't necessary that everyone gets on board with that system. You only need some people to do it in order to get a majority, sometimes. It's nice if everybody participates, but it's possible not everybody will. That's their prerogative. And they're also representing a certain segment of voters, whether you like it or not, right, that are potentially not super civil and not wanting to have those conversations. The other piece of it is that if cross-party incivility and disagreement isn't going to work to kind of curb the like excesses on the edges, you just have to do it inside your own party. You have to call out the people behind closed doors or publicly sometimes in your own party that are doing the bad stuff. And we just have to get better at that because, and it's uncomfortable and not fun, but it's sort of, they're just going to ruin the party for everyone anyway. So if there's got to be incivility, let it be, you know, in a way that could potentially bring reconciliation back later. I mean, you see this, one of the things my dad tried to teach me this last year specifically was something that he'd always practiced, but he said it specifically this year was he just learned in politics that the person that you disagreed with in the morning is your friend in the afternoon <laughs> on a different issue. And that just, I just can't tell you how many times that is true. And so what he said was he always wants to leave a conversation where you disagree with somebody and you can just leave it at we disagree and then end the meeting. That's okay too. It's uncomfortable, but I think it's fine. But when you do that in a civil way and you treat people as people instead of as political viewpoints, you have the ability to reconcile on the other issue. And so you've gained and improved your civility even if you didn't do it on the original issue you disagreed on. And so I think all that's valuable because politics is always changing. That's one of my favorite things about it is politics is never, it's just almost never the same. Two years in any other industry, it feels like, you know, may advance at a certain pace or whatever. Politics in two years is just such a lifetime. Just so many different things happen in two years. You forget 95% of it and there's still, there's something else coming the next day, right? And so it keeps an ADHD brain like mine very active, which is helpful. 
so and then and my other favorite thing about politics is there's just stop dates there's the election and then we're done and then their session is over and we're done and so it helps because you have that thing where it's like it doesn't matter if we finished it's done now <laughs> like it's like we didn't pass the law we're done because <laughs> the session is over so that was a great um, question thank you yeah i really appreciate thank it you. all right our time's basically up i want to thank ben and reagan for coming when they talked about their schedule we experienced this this was originally <laughs> going to happen in february only because of ben Oops. Yeah, well, he's more he's more popular than i am uh so we have been working on date for this for a long time and actually had to change the date after we'd found a date so Appreciate very much you making time for this. And thank you all for coming. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Thank you.